he had tested positive for COVID. And they um, they both had like minor you know, back aches and congestion, whatever. But on by Friday, she's like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And you know, she can't get him to her car to take her to the doctor because they lived like in this again, walk steps down, and she couldn't walk him, like she couldn't handle him. So the next day I called and I said, Is that any better? She goes, No, it's not any better. Like he 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 was eating for a while, now he's in the bed, I still don't know what to do with him. I, I don't know. And I'm like, Dude, you can't can't take care of him by yourself, you need to call. So that means calling the ambulance. She called the ambulance, the ambulance came out, did a sensor and they had her report him. She's like, oh my gosh, you didn't know, you know, things can just go like that. Anyway, they took him to the hospital, and then for the first day or two, he um, he was okay. Like, he gave him like one liter of oxygen, and he had one and three, then they put him back to, back to one, and they're talking to her about rehab and where he was going to go after this. And, and we were, and you know, when he got there, they were like, oh, you've got pneumonia and sepsis, which neither one of those things is good. But if we're, if we're like an AO poop can kick it, it'd be my dad. There for a couple days, we thought he was going to kick it. And then on Thursday, this is a funny joke, I'll tell you this, you guys. On Thursday, um, I did get a phone call from um, one of my relatives, and they, she was pretty hysterical. She said, the doctor just called him, he's not going to pull through this. He's not going to pull through. And that was Thursday, the Thursday before he died. And I'm like, oh my gosh, can I get there before he dies? I don't know, he lives in Pennsylvania. So I got the call at 9.30. I called Emma and I said, I'm going to need you to take me to the airport. I got on the computer and the earliest one out was Southwest and it left at 1130. This is 930. I didn't have to run. So I booked a ticket. I booked a car into Baltimore. By, by 10 o'clock, I'm stepping out of the shower and Emma's like, you know we have to go. I'm like, I know we have to go. And at 10.05, I was packed and we were in the car. Now, I don't even know where I packed. I didn't pack hardly. We just throw stuff in the bag. To Chris's credit, he had said, why don't you pack a bag ahead of, bag ahead of time and be ready? And I'm like, mm, I should have done that. Sorry, dude. <laughs> By 10.05, I'm in the car. Now, I'm in the car, frantically, you know, you're, you're, you're texting everybody. You're like, I don't know if we're going to make it. I don't even know if I'm making it on the airplane. Like, I don't know if I can get to the airport that fast from Castle Rock. Yeah. <laughs> right? To 11.30 when my plane was going to leave. And I get in the car and I look at, I pull it up on my app, my Southwest app. I had booked it through my old name, Paula Clodfellow. Instead of Paula Waterman, because it was in my rapid reward, blah, 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 whatever. I'm like, oh, they're not going to let me through the gate, through security, if I don't have my name right matching my ID. So I called the um, Southwest, you know, and of course I said, yeah, hello, this is Southwest. You will be next in line. Your wait is 42. I was like, oh, you can hold, you can hold, or you need to, you know, hang up with your number and go we'll hide it. I'm like, well, I have to hold. I'm like, 42 minutes. I might not even, I might need the airport before I get a hold of something, right? And so you're sweating it the whole time. And you know, my my daughter's like, mom, just buy a ticket, just buy a ticket. I'm like, no, because I'll never get this one refunded, you know. And I then I was like, okay, maybe I should buy a ticket. My new, I went to buy it. They wouldn't let me buy it because it was too close to the to the departure time. So like, now I have to get my name changed, you know, through this through the Southwest. And they um, finally get a lady gets on the thing, you know, she's like, can, can, I, can I help you? I'm like, yeah, I, I booked my name in the wrong, I booked my ticket in the wrong name. I need to change it. She's like, what is the name of the ticket? I'm like, Clodfelder, I need it rewarded. Well, do we have, is Clodfelder, is it Clodfelder Waterman? A hyphenated name? I'm like, it is not hyphenated. It's my old name. I need to change it. She goes, can you put this 
sitting in the bathroom doing work, and I was really, I can't really really change it. And I was just like, I finally just went, I'm going to the hospital because my going to the airport because my dad is dying of COVID. And then I just like blew up on her and she went, I'll be happy to change it for you right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, I need it. So I'm like, well, I have to use the COVID thing quite a bit more, you know, to get my way with right. stuff, right? So she, yeah, it was five minutes before I got to the airport that she changed it, seriously. She changed it, she put my um, pre-check thing in there, you know? I get to the airport, you know, you're, you're running to the airport, you know how it is when you're in the airport and you're in a rush, the slowest people in the world were in front of you. And they've taken up the whole lane. And it's little kids, they're like, <laughs> and you don't want to be mean and like shove them out of the way or anything, you know, because, but you're just like, can you see me, see me, can I get through, see me, can I get through, can I get through, and you're like, I'm running through the aisle, going to security. Um, I, I get through security in record time, five seconds. I, I, then, you know, of course, Southwest is concourse C, right. the furthest away from. Accordingly, it's going to take two minutes to go to A. Then it's going to take 30 seconds for people to get in and off the floor. Then it's going to take 30, you know. Two minutes to get to the, and you're counting every second till you get to the gate, right? I get to the gate about 15 after. Shocking. And I, I people are kind of lined up. You know how Southwest, you have to line up, whatever. I'm like, hey, I was in C because I had booked it so late. Had they loaded C yet? And they're like, no, we're just doing A. Well, now that I'm there, I'm like, everyone get on the damn plane. Like, get on and, and let's go. Like, now I don't want to wait. I'm like, why are we waiting? Get on the plane, right? So we get on the plane, and it's 11.25, 11.30. We didn't wait until 12 o'clock to get a 30-minute delay. And I'm like, of course, that's the way it works, right? Anyway, I get to, I fly to Baltimore. My sister had decided to fly, and then there, thankfully, if we were there like an hour apart, I went and got the car. And, you know, as it is, you know how it is with sisters, and when you have no margin for anything, like you're, like, I'm texting throughout the plane, we got free Wi-Fi, and I'm texting, 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 what's going on, what are they doing, you know? And, and they were saying, well, they're, they're waiting for you to get here. They're, keep, they're, they're not, not giving you morphine until you get here. We're waiting for you to get here. So you're just texting with everybody back and forth about all those kinds of details. How's it doing, what's, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, Southwest, you can do two free bags and all that kind of thing. My sister flew on Southwest, too, and I was, I had already gotten in the car and I was waiting for her. And I'm like, where? And she goes, well, I'm at baggage plane. I'm like, why are you at baggage plane? She goes, well, I checked the bag. I'm like, why did you check a bag? I'm like, did you need that many clothes? I'm like, could you have just put it in a carry-on so we didn't have to wait for this? And she's like, uh-huh. Oh, I go crazy about my check bag or what? I'm like, I know, I'm really sorry. So... Yeah, her, and on the way there, it's pitch black. By the time I get the car, and I'm now I'm driving to Pennsylvania, it's about an hour and a half drive. It is black by midnight out. I had asked for a mid-sized truck because it's the same cost, same cost as like a compact. They gave me a Dodge Rebel Ram, the biggest <laughs> truck I've ever seen. Seriously, you know, and it's got the one where it doesn't have a key. You press the button, and you don't. You like. Like, I didn't know how to use the windshield wipers because, <laughs> because of all the gadgets. And then the, the way you, like, go forward and reverse everything is a dial. Oh. It's not even, like, a thing. So you're, like, figuring out new technology while you're freaking out 
you know, driving an hour and a half in pitch black, trying to like read your GPS and figure out directions, all the while texting everybody what's going on, what's going on in the hospital, you know. And then, <laughs> and of course, there was one that this had to be the Lord. I'm driving in this huge truck, right? And it's got those mirrors that have the, the one mirror and then the little side mirror that shows more. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to use those things. I didn't know how to use the mirrors right. So I'm it's pitch black. I'm merging into one of the lanes. And he's like, no, don't, don't, stop, don't. And I'm like, wait, use your words. Like, what are you trying to say? I'm looking for deer. Like, am I running a deer? I was totally sideswiping somebody. Now, right? <laughs> I think the Lord, like, pushed me out of the way so I didn't, I didn't um, kill those people. I'm not kidding. It was the Lord. Because she goes, Paula, you almost just totally ran right into them. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. What did you say? Did they have a black car? No, it was just in a blind spot, and I couldn't use those mirrors. I didn't know how to use those weird mirrors. And I'm freaked out driving anyway, at night, in a huge truck. And my dad is at that floor. Right. Right? So I finally get there, and um, he was. He was he was lucid, and we had a Zoom. We did a Zoom. Maybe he put on all this all this PPP, PPE equipment and stuff, like a mask and a whatever. And we had Zoom, and it was precious. And he, you know, he was lucid, and he was laboring to breathe. He had to go back to ICU. But he had something he didn't want a ventilator. But ended up, they gave him. They were given a 15 liters of oxygen, which is the most you can get before you go on a ventilator. And he didn't want a ventilator. And they had with, they had decided not to give him any pain meds or anything, so that he would be awake when we got there. And we had a really precious time, a really great Zoom. Um, a really nice Zoom thing with him and my kids, you know. And, um, and it was midnight by that time. And my sister and I were just beat, so we had gotten a hotel. We went back to the hotel room. And at about 2 o'clock, Sandy, his wife, stayed there with him. Because the, the nurses, I mean, we weren't really supposed to be allowed in there. She insisted, and we would do two at a time. So there was four people. It was me, my sister, and then her son, Floyd, which my dad raised. We would rotate going in there. So if we weren't in there, the other two of us were in the parking lot waiting in our cars. So we'd be two in the parking lot, then we'd go in. We'd have to go through and put on our equipment the whole time. And it was it was like you were in the moon. It was like being an astronaut, you know. So Mindy and I went to the hospital or back to our hotel and we um we got a little sleep and then Sandy called me at two o'clock and she said, Paula, he's asked for more pain. He's asked you to pray for him. And I was kind of asleep, I'm like, what? And then I was like, oh, I need to get over there. So I went over there, and he was not okay. He was not in a good place. He was really struggling to breathe, and it was hard to watch. And, you know, in typical Paula style, I'm like, where is his morphine? Why have we allowed it to get like this? And I went out, and I found those nurses, and I was like, you need to dump some drugs into this man. I don't care. He goes the next five minutes, but you're dumping drugs in him. I'm not watching this happen for however many hours. And after a couple hours, I got straightened out, but it was hard to watch. And I've never, I don't know about you guys. Have you guys ever watched anyone pass away? And you had, you have, someone you love, or just in general? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a really weird place to be. I've been to funerals. I've done funerals before. I've done, I've done weddings before. And I've always told people I like doing funerals better because there's a, much bigger feeling of sacredness mm -hmm. in a funeral. 
And that's why I titled my game Sacred. I want to kind of get to that. So by the end, he was peaceful, and he was just taking the long, drawn-out breaths. And I was there for his final breath. I was there for his final breath. And when he was finally gone, and you just look at his body, you could tell he wasn't in there anymore. It was very surreal, the, the difference between life and death. And when you're looking at just a dead body, it is simply a shell. It is simply a shell. But you guys, there is something about watching a person die and a person that you love cross over to the next place that will stop you in your tracks. Stop you in your tracks. Because it crystallizes everything down to the most important things in life. Right? Nothing else. I mean, I didn't care what clothes I was wearing. Because I, I mean, my hair. What you just don't care anymore, right? You were just there to witness this transition, this Passover, this going from one life to the next. And so after he passed away, we had a couple of things we had to do, and we had the funeral on Wednesday. Now, Wednesday, here's the other thing. Wednesday is when everything happened at the Capitol. Now, remember, I'm in Pennsylvania, which is an hour and a half away from the Capitol. You guys, when I tell you the atmosphere out there is heavy, I mean it is oppressive. You can feel it in the airport. You can feel it in the land. You feel it all around you. There is oppressiveness out on the East Coast. I was so glad to get back here. I can't even tell you. But on the day of this funeral, we're going to this funeral. And, and I'm going to kind of get into this a little bit later. You know how they are at funerals when you eulogize people. You talk about all the good things that people did. Right? We did pull together pictures and we picked out the songs. Um, it was really, really good. But here's the kind of weird thing. I'm going to touch on this later. Because Mindy and I really remarked at this. You know, my dad, you guys, I love my dad. I've had my issues with my dad. But I love him like we all love our parents. He was not a perfect man. None of us are perfect people. He was married to my mom for 24 years and got divorced. He was a pastor and got divorced. Long story. Um, And then he remarried somebody and he'd been married to her for 34 years. They They had a great marriage. But in his funeral, it's like the 24 years he's with my mom, cut out, didn't exist, not mentioned. It's kind of like, Chris and I were talking about it, it's kind of like um, cancel culture. Mm-hmm. We're sort of skip over that 24 years and then, and then do the rest of the stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and people had great things to say about him because he was, Chris, you loved him. He was a very congenial, mm-hmm. kind he was the guy that did the dad jokes. I mean, when I got up and did my little thing for him, I was like, are you mad today? You know, he would say that to me like 10 times a day, Paula, are you mad today? Are you mad? It's just his dad jokes. You know, and we all go, ugh. You know, we've heard it so many times. I can't tell you all the jokes I know for him. And at the end, I finally, for Christmas, would just give him dad joke books for him to have some fresh material, you know, because I heard so much of it. But it was weird. The casino was great, but it was weird that that was just jumped over like that. I had some conversations with Lori about it, actually. I called her and I'm like, what, what are you saying? So, what I want to talk about today, you guys have seen that um, movie, Shawshank Redemption? Yeah. Isn't that a good movie? Mm-hmm. 
So I want to use Shawshank Redemption, and I want to talk about some of my thoughts about the sacredness of life. I think that when we are in places of funerals or those kinds, especially death, not even weddings so much, sometimes births, but deaths especially, we that's when God gets hold of us and we get still and we're like, wait a minute. What is, what's the sacred stuff of life? You know, people argue all the time about what's sacred and what's not sacred. The definition from, um, you know, Facebook, like she, the dictionary. To be sacred means dedicated or set apart for the service or worship of a, a deity, devoted exclusively to one service or use, worthy of religious veneration, or entitled to reverence and respect. That's what the definition of sacred is. The opposite of sacred is secular. Secular means denoting attitudes, activities, or other things that have no religious or spiritual basis. Now, the thing is, a lot of people think that they're sacred things and they're secular things. And what I want to say to you is, I don't think that's true. I think all of life is sacred. I don't think that we can separate our lives into this is the sacred part of life and this is the secular part of life. Because I think if we're going to be Christians that change the world, we have to, our attitude has to be that everything we do in life is sacred. Not just the things that hit us emotionally, like going to funerals or weddings or, or births or things, you know, rites of passage, but that everything we do in this world has to be seen through the lens of how are we worshiping God through this activity or this action or this lifestyle. It's, we don't, if we're Christians, we don't live in a secular world anymore. Mm-hmm. We, may, we may pass through it. We may have contact with it. But we really don't live in a secular world anymore. And it's things like funerals that remind us of the sacred. You know, when I was at that funeral, you don't, you don't think, well, we evolved from an amoeba, and then we're going to decay and go back to the ground. Nobody thinks about that at funerals. At funerals, you talk about going to heaven. You talk about your next place. There is a connection to the divine when you're in a funeral. You feel it, you know it. It's not anything that has to be scientifically supported or proven. It's just like there are no atheists in foxholes. There's just not. When you come back close to death, the veil is open, and you touch and you see the divine. And I guess what I want to say to you guys is we need to get to the place where that sacred reverence for life is with us, Every day, not during, not just during the emotional times of our life. You guys know um, J- Charles Spurgeon. Have you ever heard of him? Mm-hmm. He is a really, really famous guy in the 19th century. He was like the Billy Graham of that time. It says when he died, sixty thousand people came to pay homage during the three days his body lay in state at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. 100,000 people, this is back in the 1800s, 100,000 people lined the streets as a funeral parade two miles long followed his hearse from the tabernacle to the cemetery. Flags flew at half-staff and shops and pubs were closed. I guess it was just closed for two days. He was one of the most influential Preachers of the time. This is what he says about the sacred and the secular. 
He says, to a man who lives unto God, nothing is secular. Everything is sacred. He puts on his workday garment, and it is a vestment to him. He sits down to his meal, and it is a sacrament. He goes forth to his labor, and therein exercises the office of the priesthood. His breath is incense, and his life a sacrifice. He sleeps on the bosom of God and lives and moves in the divine presence. To draw a hard and fast line and say, this is sacred and this is secular, is to my mind diametrically opposed to the teaching of Christ and the spirit of the gospel. That's powerful, right? The scripture says it like this. Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. I want to show you this first clip from um, Shawshank Redemption. Cody, you don't mind this first one? It's down there and I'm in here. I guess it comes down to a simple choice. Too busy living. You get busy dying. That's one of the uh, main themes in Shawshank Redemption. That's Andy and then his friend Red. They're the main characters in Shawshank Redemption. Andy's kind of a Christ-like figure. It's kind of like a, a savior figure in there. You'll, I'll kind of go through it as we go through the story. But that's one of the most famous lines, get busy living or get busy dying. When I think about us deciding to live a life that's sacred, for me, sacred is we need to start getting busy living. And living for real, living for eternal life, not just living for the here and now, not living like secular people, but we need to decide, we need to put to rest in our heart, are we going to get busy living or get busy dying? There's no in-between space. You're either getting busy living or getting busy dying. And I'm going to choose to get busy living because I want to treat all of life as sacred, not just small parts of it. So you guys know the um, story of Shawshank Redemption, which is by Stephen King, which just cracks me up because he does some of the most, right, like The Shining. I, was, I used to read the book in um, college, and I'd have to read a chapter and then go put it on the other side of the room so I couldn't see the cover because it was so frightening to me, right? But he also really is in touch with a lot of spiritual truths. He's one of those really talented, gifted people who is very in touch with the supernatural. It comes out in all these different ways, I think. But Shawshank Redemption is literally one of my favorite movies of all time. You like it, don't you, Aaron? Because he's a movie buff, right? I love it. So if you know the story, Andy, he's, I think, wrongfully accused, right? And imprisoned in this prison called Shawshank Redemption. And he's given a life term or a long, long term or whatever. And um, he makes friends with the old-timer convicts in the prison. One of them is Red, who's been in there for a long time, right? And what happens is when you've been institutionalized for a long time in the prison, when you, when you finally do get out, a lot of them commit suicide because their community has become the prison and the, and the what goes on in the prison. Just sad, right? And so when they get out, they don't know how to live. They don't know how to have any kind of um, hope or joy. And, I, and Andy decides this is not going to be him. So we're going to show this next. After a lot of consternation, he decides it's not going to be him. And I apologize if there's bad language. 
crawled to freedom through 500 yards of shit-smelling brownness I can't even imagine. I just don't want to. That's the length of five football fields, just shy of half a mile. what we forget or neglect to do. 
sometimes there's passivity that comes in. I'm sure you know people like this. We all have people like this in our lives who are just stuck. They don't like where their life is going, but they don't want to do anything about it. They want to be stuck. They want to be, I call it passivity. And year after year after year goes by, and they're not living for life, they're living for death. They're not getting busy living. They're actually just hanging on till they die. That's not what we're called to be. We're not called to be passive people. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't sometimes hold our tongue and not do things. But what we're not called to be is people who simply let life pass us by. We're called to be like an Andy. And even when we're in difficult times, we persevere through them. Even if it's years and years and years. Even if we don't see it all the time, if God has called us to it, we focus and we persevere. And we live life for the eternal, not for the here and now. You know, one of the scriptures, one of my favorite scriptures is God has not given us a spirit of fear, but power, love, and a sound mind. And some, one of the things that can really derail us is the fear of man. Not just fear of like, um, I'm afraid I'll fail, or I'm afraid, but sometimes it's the fear of man. It's the fear of standing up or standing out and saying, this is what I stand for. This is who God has called me to be. Um, you know, I'm going to do a Saturday night supper club. Even though people don't understand it, that's what I'm going to do. That's a scary thing. But sometimes if we're going to be an Andy, if we're going to get to our promised land, we have to do the things that people don't understand. Right? And we can't be shut down by the fear of man. Or the other thing is that sometimes we get shut down with you guys. This is the way we've always done it. This is, this is my family culture. This is what my family does. You know, and I like to say I'm 39, even though I'm really not, but thank you for playing along with me. <laughs> but our parents are, come from a generation where we didn't talk about anything. The motto is we don't talk about unpleasant things. Who wants to go out for dinner? We're, we're just going to not talk about that craziness over there or that hurt feeling over there. We're not going to talk things through. We gloss over it. We um, put it you know, shove it under the rug, and we all put a happy face on and keep going. Well, I'm telling you right now, that's not God's way. And even though your parents did it that way, and even though you were raised that way, that's not God's way. And sometimes, being a perseverer, being someone who lives a sacred life, says, wait a minute, I'm not going to do it that way just because that's the way it's always been done. I'm a pioneer. I'm a leader. I'm going to do it the way that God wants me to do it because life is precious and life is sacred. So thirdly, when we decide to live a sacred life, we point the way to freedom and hope for other people. Let's watch the third clip, if you don't mind. This is Red. He's gotten out of prison. Dear Red, if you're reading this, you've gotten out. And if you've come this far, maybe you're willing to come a little further. You remember the meaning of the town, don't you? They want to know. I could use a good man to help me get my project on wheels. I'll keep an eye out for you and a chessboard ready. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. I will be hoping that this letter finds you and finds you well. Your friend, Andy. 
I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still and hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. So remember, Red gets, he finally gets paroled. Andy's escaped, and he gets paroled, and he goes to the same hotel, the same boarding house, that Brooks, another long-term inmate, had gone to and killed himself because he just couldn't handle it. And Red gets up there, and he gets ready to do the same thing. And then he remembers Andy. He remembers what Andy has done. And he remembers that Andy has made a place for him to go to if he has the courage to do it. So I guess what I'm saying to you guys, when we decide to live for God, to live for his kingdom, to serve God, we're not only living eternal lives for ourselves, we are pointing the way for people around us. And we're bringing them with us. Just like Red had a place to go to because Andy escaped. Right. He got out. He made a place for him. He says, I got a place for you. Come to where I'm at. We get to be those saints. That's the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus is to set people free from slavery and say, in my father's house, there are many rooms. And I go to prepare a place for you. When we live sacred lives, we participate in the same ministry of Jesus. And we get to bring all these people with us. And I think that, to me, is one of the most exciting motivations for deciding to live authentic, sacred lives in everything we do, day after day after day. You never know. You get that. You never know what your impact's going to be. As you guys know, I went through a really bad divorce, one that I did not understand, did not know what was happening. And out of that, became a mediator. How fucking crazy is that? And I gotta tell you, mediation isn't the most life-giving gig you can have. Most people are like, I wanna get divorced, I need you to help me do it. And I don't want people to get divorced, but I also want to be compassionate and help people. So you guys know Chris Johnson, right? I'm gonna read what she wrote. And I don't say this, I mean, I love that she says it about me, but I say it as an example to you of God never wasting any part of our lives if we'll give it to him. She said, four, four and a half years ago, I went through the most difficult experience I'd ever faced. I had hopes of my marriage being miraculously healed. I wanted the testimony of what God could do and of this restoration in my marriage. It didn't work that way. I remember sitting at our mediator's table, preparing to split everything, everything we had together, including our daughter. I was devastated, to say the least. But Paula Myers Waterman had such compassion, and knowing we were both Christians, she prayed with us before we started. That experience changed my life. Jim and I became not just amicable, but friends that day. My testimony is that through mediation, we were able to come together and set aside our differences and our faults. We learned how to move forward differently. God did not restore our marriage, but he definitely restored our relationship. To this day, I know that I can call Jim if I need him for something and vice versa. We are friends, and we parent an amazing girl together. It was shortly after that 
mediation, I realized I wanted to help others through their divorce process in hopes of having an amicable relationship to the compassion that we experienced that day. Through that life-changing and life-giving experience, I came to the realization that I had something to share with others, a gift of hope, when life is upside down and you feel like you've lost everything. And she goes on to talk about becoming a mediator. I want to tell you guys, I didn't know that. I didn't know when I was doing that mediation and when God said pray with them before you help them get divorced and pray with them afterwards, I didn't know what kind of impact that would have. But I gave and I have given that kind of ministry to the Lord. It's a weird ministry. It doesn't look godly from the outside. But I want to tell you, God doesn't waste what we've been through. And he knows what he's calling us to. And sometimes we need to do what he's called us to do and obey him even when we don't understand it. And persevere in the daily call of his kingdom and living from an eternal perspective. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I look at I look at that as just the sweetest love kiss from the Lord ever. Because she wants to become a mediator now. We're kind of working together. And I would love to hand off a bunch of my mediation to, to a Christian. Right. Somebody has an attitude like that. Right. Who wants to help people going through the, some of the worst times of their life. And I am so honored that God let me be part of that for her. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You never know what God's going to do. So I guess I'm going to leave you with this. I'm going to leave you with... Look at life as sacred. Treat everything that you do as a worship to the Lord. Leave the results up to him. He knows what he's doing. And realize that when you do that, you are actually partnering with Christ for the redemption of this world. Nothing could be better. Nothing could be better. Lord, I just thank you so much. Thank you for letting me share that, God. Thank you for thank you for using me for Chris and her divorce and in her future. God, I pray that every person here would have impact. You show them the impact they have on people's life, even if they feel that stuff they do is trivial. I pray, God, that you would give us opportunities to minister to the people around us, Lord, that we would be courageous and brave and step into a place of ministering outside of our comfort zone. Because life is sacred, and we want people to understand they have an eternal life to think about. Thank you, God, for what you're doing. We pray for our country. We pray for our hearts. We pray for hope. Lord, you are the way maker. You're going to make a way everything that's going on in our world. We trust you with all of our angst and all of that heartache. We trust you with what's going on, Lord. We love you. And we say yes and amen to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.